Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, more MPPs are deciding not to run again, including Health Minister Christine Elliott. The provincial government underspent its budget a lot over the first three quarters of this year. We've got some fresh polling on what you think about the parties and the leaders. The government picked a fight and then ended it over traditional Chinese medicine. And what should we do with MPPs who clearly cross the line into extreme, dangerous, or even illegal behavior? It's Tuesday, March the 8th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, let's stipulate that before every election, some people decide they've had enough of politics and they don't run again. Perfectly normal. But the numbers of progressive conservative MPPs who are making that decision this year, that number is unusually high, particularly for a first-term government. Last week, the highest profile member of the government, save and except for the premier, confirmed she will not be running again. Uh, That's right. Deputy Premier and Minister of Health Christine Elliott announced uh, Friday morning that she will not be running again to represent the riding of Newmarket Aurora in this year's election. Uh, Even in non-COVID times, the health minister for the province of Ontario would probably make anybody's top 10 list of most important elected officials in Canada. So it's a pretty big deal, both for the government and for the Progressive Conservative Party, uh, who are losing one of the real pillars of the party. Uh, Elliott ran three times for leader of the party and received more actual votes in 2018. Uh, but of course, Doug Ford won due to the, the points-based system that Tories use. So, you know, a major departure at Queen's Park. That's that. I, I still don't get that system. I, I don't get how many how somebody can win more votes and more ridings and lose. But I mean, I get it, but it's just anyway, it's weird. Uh, let me get back on the path here. Uh, she, of course, was not the only one to have announced last week that she's leaving. Uh, former progressive conservative MPP Randy Hillier, now an independent, has also said he's not going to run again. What do you see as Hillier's contribution to politics in Ontario? Uh, I, I think it's fair to say at this point, I'm not a fan. <laughs> um, Hillier's politics during the pandemic have become increasingly um, erratic and antagonistic, both to uh, public health policies and and also just facts. Uh, he was already censured by the legislature last year for lying about the health risks of COVID vaccines. And he was censured again a few weeks ago for calling Federal Transportation Minister Omar Al-Gabra a terrorist and for participating in the convoy protests in Ottawa. His political career provincially is ending on on just a really bad note uh, filled with conspiracy mongering and hatred. Uh, And and I want to say that for better or worse, I I was someone who gave Hillier a lot of time uh, until the pandemic started. Uh, He was definitely never boring (laughs) and uh, frequently, you know, one of the, I would say, rare principled advocates for democratic reforms at Queen's Park. But you know, whatever reputation he might have retired with prior to the last two years, that has all been squandered now. Well, let's just go off on another little tangent for a moment, shall we? Because um, you got quite a bit of Twitter chatter from a piece you wrote last week for the TVO website about how the Legislative Assembly of Ontario really can't do much at all about MPPs who, uh, what, what do we say here, behave badly? Now, you were referencing Randy Hillier in your piece, and as you indicated, his Twitter stream of late has become increasingly, let's just call it controversial, Um, How about, why don't you just summarize the the point you made in the column, and then we'll chat some more about it. 
Sure. Uh, my argument, in short, is that the legislature needs to be able to expel someone like Randy Hillier because all of the other punishments that MPPs are comfortable bringing to bear uh, don't really apply in Hillier's case. Uh, the most recent punishment that was uh, meted out to him was that he's no longer allowed to speak in the legislature until he apologizes and convinces Speaker Ted Arnott that he's sincere about it. Well, okay, but he actually hasn't spoken in the chamber itself since the fall of 2020. So MPPs imposed a punishment that he simply doesn't care about and won't change his behavior. It's like sending your kid to their room when their room has the PlayStation, you know. <laughs> um, and because of that, it looks like Hillier is going to continue being an MPP, at least in name, uh, until this legislature is dissolved in May. Well, let's follow up. Do you think that other members of the legislature should have the right to permanently eject or even fire a member who crosses the line wherever that line is? I do. And I, I think I, I, something I wasn't clear about in my column uh, is, is, is something I want to clarify here. You know, as a constitutional matter, the legislature absolutely has the power to expel Hillier if they choose to. We've discussed parliamentary privilege quite a bit on this podcast before, maybe more than anybody actually ever asked us to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are two outstanding issues that I heard from MPPs when I asked about this. And the first is that the legislature still has to act in ways that follow its own laws. And there's some question about whether laws like the Legislative Assembly Act or the Members Integrity Act would actually allow them to expel an MPP in, in the case that we're discussing, like Randy Hillier. Now, that's a solvable problem. You can just amend existing laws. Uh, but the more philosophical issue is simply that a lot of MPPs are very, very anxious not to be seen to be overruling the decision voters made about who represents them at Queen's Park. And I think that's a good thing on balance. I think MPPs should be anxious about that. But as a matter of law, you know, the threshold for expelling a member has never been the same as a criminal conviction, right? MPPs don't get to hold their seat until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That is just not the threshold we use. So I think the legislature needs to be able to act collectively to, to discipline members like Hillier, because even though he's announced he won't be running again, I worry that he's given future rogue MPPs uh, a model for how much they can get away with. Well, and in effect, uh, I, I, I believe it's the case that you're actually allowed to slander somebody on the floor of the legislature. You absolutely because, are. Yeah, there are, there are wide, wide berths given to MPPs to engage in debate. And you often hear members say, if you want to repeat that outside this chamber, you go ahead and you'll get sued. But they can pretty much say whatever they want inside the chamber. Now, there seemed to be just a, you know, a lot of frustration on social media about the fact that there really is no way for the legislature itself to seriously punish someone whose actions and or views are extreme or even illegal. And I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm not a lawyer. I'm in no position to judge whether Mr. Hillier broke any laws. But are there any options beyond trying to defeat him in the next election at the moment? Well, uh, let me actually stay on the issue of whether his conduct is illegal or not, because I think it's important. Uh, like you, I'm, I'm not going to risk a defamation suit by trying to assess whether Hillier's conduct is criminal or not. But, but we do have a problem here, generally, because, you know, MPPs told me they didn't think they could vote to expel him uh, unless he was at least criminally charged. But I don't think it's crazy to suggest that police and Crown prosecutors are going to be very very, very careful about charging a sitting MPP unless they have done something clearly and unambiguously illegal. 
So unless something changes, uh, I worry that you could see a legislature paralyzed because of an MPP's conduct and their unwillingness to use these these constitutional powers that they have. Uh, but to, to answer your question about Hillier's immediate future, I mean, no, there's, there's nothing short of waiting for this legislature to be dissolved before the next election. Uh, the issue is that the, the laws that are on the books, as far as MPP's personal conduct goes, are, are mostly focused on issues of what you'd broadly call conflict of interest issues. There are lots of rules about how MPPs need to manage their finances and manage their jobs so that those two categories don't get uh, too cozy. Um, And in theory, there is misconduct in those areas that could lead to an MPP being booted from the legislature. But what we're talking about with Hillier is someone who is repeatedly acting in ways that the legislature finds outrageous. I mean, he has been censured multiple times now, but his actions don't fit in any of the legal boxes that currently exist. Gotcha. Okay, let's get back on the path. The list of Tory or former Tory MPPs who aren't running again is now getting rather long. Besides Christine Elliott and Randy Hillier, we've got former cabinet ministers Rod Phillips and Jeff Urich, current cabinet minister Jane McKenna. Actually, you know what, JMM? We don't have time to mention them all. There's something (laughs) like 18 or 19 MPPs who are not coming back. Any theories? What are the prevailing theories on why so many are not running again? Well, of course, one thing we should say about that count, and, and uh, you're right, I mean, it's it's 19 MPPs, it's one quarter of the caucus that was elected in 2018, either is not running again, or is running under a different banner. Um, it, you know, but that count is, let's say, inflated somewhat by the uh, peculiar personality conflicts that have ha- occurred uh, between uh, Doug Ford as the leader of his party and some of his MPPs who have been uh, booted. We just spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about Randy Hillier, but there are others, uh, Belinda Carhalios, uh, Lindsay Park. Uh, so that is clearly a big chunk of this number. Uh, but there are, you know, I think more general issues, right? Uh, it has been a very hard four years. Uh, I, I don't think I risk too much uh, controversy when I say that the last four years have probably been much harder than uh, previous terms, at at least, you know, in my adult life. Let me (laughs) benchmark it there. Um, Just an incredibly hard four years at the legislature. Uh, There were uh, many MPPs, uh, some of the ones who have announced their their, uh, retirement, uh, you know, had been elected in 99, you know, uh, 2003, some have been waiting for a very long time to see uh, a conservative party in power. Um, They got here and, uh, you know, it was so hard, you know, they've had enough. Um, There's an issue we've mentioned before, Uh, MPPs do not have pensions. Uh, Unlike municipal councillors in Ontario, and also unlike uh, federal MPs, Uh, So there is uh, a a question of, you know, could you find better paying uh, work in the private sector? Certainly you can find work that doesn't have as long hours uh, as having to, to work at the legislature. And then finally, you know, and I think there's a a broader definition, aside from just the people who've had like the most intense conflicts with uh, Doug Ford, uh, you know, the Hilliers, the Carajalioses, I I think some of it might just be um, a bit of... uh, unhappiness, maybe disillusionment with uh, Doug Ford, you know, the the government really has taken a very different direction than I think a lot of Tories uh, thought they were going to get in 2018. Uh, The government wants to get reelected, wants to be popular. And 
there's a long history of this stuff in conservative politics where the desire to get reelected and to stay popular takes you further and further away from the, the, the core of conservative uh, advocacy, let me put it that way. Well, I was just going to read between the lines there, because, of course, Doug Ford got elected in 2018 to be a disruptive populist force in Ontario, and he really has not been that. He has governed as a much more centrist, much less conservative, much less libertarian, progressive conservative premier than the core of the Tory party would certainly approve of. I, I think that's fair to say. You know, I... I have said this a few times, I, I think one of the formative experiences for this government was that 2019 budget that cost Vic Fideli his job as a finance minister, because the conservatives came forward with this really bracing, uh, you know, document filled with spending cuts. And this was what conservative government was going to look like in Ontario. And it was so unpopular, they had to back off. As I said, it cost Vic Fideli his job. Um, and then Doug Ford uh, well, we could argue about how much he went into hiding, but certainly he kept a much lower profile for almost a year until COVID came around. And, you know, that was, uh, I think, a real turning point in this government. Uh, they, they just decided that actually <laughs> Ontario voters weren't as enamored with uh, spending restraint as your average progressive conservative uh, voter was, and uh, they want to get reelected. And it's not that hard a choice in the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's always better to be in than out, right? Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Okay, well, while we're on the subject of money, let's keep talking money because the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario, which is, uh, as we've discussed many times here, a nonpartisan agency, it works for the people of Ontario, it works for the Legislative Assembly, not for just the government. They put out another study last week, and the FAO likes to keep track of how the government spends our tax dollars, and they discovered something rather curious. What did they find? The Ontario government has spent $5.5 billion less than it was budgeted to uh, over the first three quarters of the 2021-22 budget year. I, I, I almost want you to repeat that because, <laughs> you know, every government in this country over the last two plus years of COVID has spent way more than they had ever intended to spend. And what did the FAO find? They found that they the government has spent $5.5 billion less. Less. Okay, what happened to the government that said it would spare no expense to protect its people from the ravages of COVID-19? How, how is this information consistent with that point of view? Well, uh, you thought you might ask that. Uh, so <laughs> there have been specific areas of the government that have spent uh, a lot less than uh, expected. Uh, the Ministry of Health obviously uh, has spent less than they were budgeted for. In general, if the government is spending less money than you would uh, plan on, then the Ministry of Health is going to be where a lot of those savings show up just because like so much of what we spend on is healthcare. Uh, but so did children's and social services. Uh, so did post-secondary education. So did public education. Um, one other thing that the government also spent less on that I, I think a lot of people would say is, is just unambiguously a good thing is the interest on debt, uh, which was less than anticipated. Ontario is still getting a decent deal uh, on interest rates when it uh, asks private sector for money. Now, we are not cynical, neither you nor I here on the On Poly podcast, but would I be crazy to suspect that this money is being held back in anticipation of making a lot of campaign spending promises once the election begins in earnest in May? Uh, somebody fetch me my fainting couch. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, of course, you know, 
We saw some of this uh, last year that uh, there is actually just some money that always gets held back until the end of the fiscal year. Um, but yes, I think it is very, very likely that the government will uh, just happen to announce before we go to an election that, hey, uh, the province's accounts look so much better than we thought uh, they, they were going to last year. Look at what an amazing job we are doing in terms of our, our fiscal management. Uh, and Perhaps we will hear, by the way, things are so much better that we can afford a, a nice shiny tax cut for Ontario voters. Please remember us when you go to your voting booth. <laughs> well, we, we, we just got a billion dollar tax cut last week, right? When they announced that they were going to no longer require us to buy uh, license plate renewal stickers anymore. That's a billion dollar savings to the people of Ontario. So I guess more to come. Uh, quite possibly, yes. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, the FAO has in fact indicated that if you look f into the the future years of what the spending plans are uh, for the government, uh, there is a uh, there is a signal that the government is anticipating even further tax cuts. Mm -hmm. All right, let's touch on health care here for the next few items. We've heard numerous stories about how rundown doctors and nurses have been over the past two years of COVID-19. The province made an announcement on Monday that it hopes will attract more people to nursing. It is offering $5,000 bonuses for nurses to remain on the job. The initial reaction to the offer, JMM, was, well, what shall we call it, less than impressed. Yes, not not exactly overwhelmed with uh, excitement. Uh, several unions that work in the healthcare space, such as the Ontario Nurses Association, Unifor, the SEIU, uh, they have all said things like, you know, temporary fixes haven't worked to stabilize the PSW workforce, and a one-time $5,000 payment won't work to retain and recruit nurses who are asking for long-term predictability and support. Now, that's the immediate response to the immediate announcement by the government. But there is a subplot here, right? There's more going on than meets the eye? Right. Uh, we have discussed the uh, criticism of the government's Bill 124 before. Uh, this caps public sector salary increases at 1%. As I always do when we discuss Bill 124, I will mention, of course, that it does apply to TVO. So, you know, full disclosure there. Uh, but, uh, you know, healthcare unions are understandably using this announcement by the province to renew their opposition to this bill. You know, it's it's quite a different thing to get a one-time $5,000 check versus being able to say a year from now, two years from now, that your household finances will be better because you will have uh, you know, predictable increases in your pay. That's what these uh, workers and their unions are asking for. Um, and of course, you know, in the pandemic, we've seen it's just an incredibly difficult uh, and frankly, expensive job to try and uh, retain workers in these uh, very difficult and very important jobs. We'd like to draw our listeners' attention to another announcement that came out on Monday, something that is really quite rare for this or any other government for that matter. They announced that they are backing down on part of some major legislation that they had just announced. This time it's about the College of Traditional Chinese Medicine. What's the story here? Uh, so this is a, a bit of an odd one. So I'm going to start with some basics here. Uh, in Ontario, we mostly regulate medical professions with regulatory colleges. So there's the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the College of Nurses, the College of Dental Surgeons, and so on. Uh, these are you know bodies made up of doctors to regulate doctors. Um, in 2006, the Liberal government created a college for traditional uh, Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Uh, it took a while to actually get the college up and running. It started formally operating in 2013. 
2018. And very quickly after it started operating, there were a number of legal challenges to the rules and regulations it was establishing. Uh, people can Google those lawsuits if they're very curious. But one of the, the core arguments that critics made was that uh, the rules and regulations that were being made by the college discriminated against Mandarin-speaking Chinese Canadians to the benefit of Cantonese-speaking Chinese Canadians. The challenge failed in Ontario's courts, but I think that's some useful context for what came next. And what did come next? Well, you remember that new labor rights bill we discussed last week? And do you remember how I said we'd have to wait until we saw the text of the bill itself because it could have some important details? I think we said the devil is in the details. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the text of Bill 88, the Working for Workers Act 2, uh, was published after we recorded last week's episode, and it contained a section basically abolishing the College of Traditional Chinese Medicine and instead regulating Chinese medicine with the same body that regulates PSWs and tattoo artists. And was there any explanation by the government for why they did this? Well, Health Minister Christine Elliott cited some of the language barriers that the college had allegedly put up that prevented Mandarin speakers from being accredited as practitioners. Uh, but, you know, maybe the most salient fact about this whole story is that as we record this, it's already over. Uh, the government's critics very loudly and clearly accused the government of putting health and safety at risk by removing a consumer protection. And by Monday morning, uh, the government had backed down and says that it will not proceed with trying to pass that section of Bill 88. Hmm. Okay. That, that's, uh, that is an interesting and unusual development, so we're glad to put that on the record. Let's now talk polling. Um, my pal Richard Mackey slipped me some numbers from the Leger Polling Company this past weekend, so thanks to Rick. And uh, John Michael, you and I are going to go through some of this right now because we've got some, I think, uh, pretty interesting numbers to share with our listeners. For example, let's get started. How well has the current Ontario government handled the COVID-19 situation? Pretty simple question. The results that came back to Leger, 59% approve, only 36% disapprove. Government's got to like those numbers. Let's dive a little deeper. People were asked, now that the restrictions are being lifted, how likely are you to resume doing various activities? And the biggest number, two-thirds, said, yes, we're going to go back to the office. Another majority, 54%, said, yes, we're going to go back to restaurants. But 53%, again, a bare majority here, said, no, we're not ready to attend concerts or sporting events or anything with large crowds, go to nightclubs, that kind of thing. Uh, just before we go on, what do you infer from those numbers there? I mean, I think it's really interesting that people are, are generally okay with the idea of going back to their workplaces. They think those are going to be you know safe places going forward. But Still lots of skepticism about hanging out in big crowds. Uh, you know, the, the thing about clubs and bars and restaurants is that, uh, you know, for a lot of the time, people are, are not wearing masks. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, it, it'll be interesting to see, especially with all the discussion of, you know, how does our, uh, you know, service sector economy uh, recover from the last two years? Uh, you know, we've obviously spoken a lot about public health policy, but some of this is also just going to be public health psychology, for lack of a better word. Right. Leger also asked the tried, tested, and true question, if the election were held today, who would you vote for? Now, of course, the election is not being held today, but if it were, here we go. PC's in the lead with 39%, the NDP and the Liberals tied at 27% for second place, and the Greens at 3%. But as I always like to say, Polls tell you what people thought yesterday. It's not necessarily what people are going to think on June the 2nd. Campaigns matter. Having said that, what do you think of those numbers? Well, 
I think the, the most obvious point there is that that's a good lead for the, the Tories. 39% is maybe on the cusp of a majority, depending on how votes split. Uh, and on the matter of vote splits at the moment, uh, with the opposition vote basically evenly split between the Liberals and the NDP, you know, that's really helpful for the Conservatives. Uh, we've seen a number of other polls showing those very, very even splits in the opposition. I don't think that's something that is going to persist once the campaign itself gets underway, but certainly if it does, uh, and, and you know, if you're the Tories, you really hope it does, because it could uh, really hand the Progressive Conservatives some uh, easy wins, let's say, uh, in contested seats. Well, let's do a little historical comparison here. Doug Ford won the 2018 election with 40% of the vote, which won him a majority government. Would 39% be enough? Well, as you point out, depends on how the vote split. Kathleen Wynne in 2014 and Bob Ray in 1990 both won majorities with about 38% of the vote. But again, they got very, very lucky on the splits. Right. And, you know, if the Tories want to be assured of a, a second consecutive majority, uh, they would feel much more comfortable if uh, Doug Ford can nudge those numbers up a point or two. And I suppose it's also worth mentioning that, I, I mean, from all the polling I've seen, this is one of the best poll results that the Tories have had in the last few months, this, this Leger poll. So, yes. Certainly others have shown them more in the 35% range. Right. Now, the other thing worth noting in that Leger poll is the name recognition of each of the leaders. And I don't suppose much of this will come as a shock to people who listen to this podcast. When people are asked who's Doug Ford, 93% could identify him as the premier, 93%. Lord, do I want to talk to those 7% though? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, eh? Who's the 7% who don't know who Doug Ford is? Okay. Uh, clearly, they're not listening to this podcast. Okay. Opposition leader Andrea Horvath had an 81% awareness rating. That's pretty good. Again, perhaps not all that surprising, given that this is her fourth time leading her party into a general election. Here's the tough part for the liberals. The, their rookie leader, Stephen Del Duca, had only 64% name recognition, and Mike Schreiner of the Greens was at 47%. What do you read into all of that? You know, I think... Uh this could get construed as a, a partisan statement, and I'm certainly uh, not trying to do that. But I, I think this election is going to show that the Liberals have the most room to grow, uh, and the campaign is going to be incredibly important for that. Uh, Stephen Del Duca is... The, the flip side of nobody knowing your name is that nobody hates you. <laughs> um, and so Stephen Del Duca is going to have some room to grow his own personal name recognition and hopefully, for the liberals, hopefully, uh, you know, grow their public support. Um, you know, it's it's certainly interesting to me that all four leaders uh, are are basically underwater in that survey in terms of their their personal favorability ratings. Uh, Ford is at negative thirteen, uh, Horvath is at negative three, Del Duca is negative six, and even Mike Schreiner is at negative seven. And that in particular surprises me. <laughs> Usually, the Greens tend to sort of pull pretty well. Nobody hates them. Um, but it's also worth noting that, you know, the leader who has brought his popularity up the most over the past few months is Del Duca. Again, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, his ability to grow his numbers probably the most. Uh, Horvath is down a bit. Uh, Ford is up a bit. Schreiner basically flat. But, you know, Del Duca's numbers really have, have improved more than any of the other leaders. So maybe a, 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 a glimmer of hope there for uh, liberals. Uh, the most polarizing leader... 
is and was and continues to be uh, Doug Ford, uh, whose unfavorability numbers are the worst of all the leaders. Uh, but remember, you know, thanks to first past the post in Canadian politics, if 60% of the people vote against Ford, he still wins because 40% is probably all he needs to win the election. Uh, and in particular, if 60% uh, of those uh, opponents are split among three parties. As they currently are. Okay, let's keep going. We've got some numbers on the trucker convoy, which don't reflect too well on the demonstrators. 71% of those surveyed thought the convoy made them more concerned about public safety. Only 26% didn't. 53% were worried that the convoy would spread to their community. But on the big question of whether people were actually concerned about the convoy overthrowing the government, which was the stated aim of some of the members of that convoy, 28% were concerned about that. 3 in 10. 68% not concerned. What conclusions do you draw from that? You know, it's consistent with other polls we've seen about uh, the lack of support for the convoy itself. Uh, there were, uh, you know, some polls showing some support for some of the objectives. There's a lot of skepticism about public health measures out there, especially uh, among conservative voters, I would say. Uh, but the support for the convoy itself uh, definitely withered away after uh, some of the events that we saw both in Ottawa and in Windsor. Uh, they seem to have the support of a, between 20 and 30 percent of uh, the population. You know, they're... The <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, except that, you know, the claims to be, you know, representing the vast majority of freedom-loving Canadians, it's just, the numbers just aren't there. Indeed. Now, we've got time for one more item here, and I guess I should ask you, have I mentioned former Premier Bill Davis yet in this podcast? Uh, no, I have not, and I was waiting for that shoe to drop. Okay, it's about to drop, my friend, because it's long overdue. <laughs> here we go. There actually was some Bill Davis news last week. The culture minister, Lisa McLeod, went to Brampton, Mr. Davis's hometown, of course, and brought with her a $150,000 check to help pay for a statue that will be created later this year in Mr. Davis's likeness. The announcement was made on March the 1st, which was the 51st anniversary to the day of Mr. Davis's being sworn in as Ontario's 18th premier. Mr. Davis, of course, died last August at the age of 92. At 14 years, he was the second longest serving premier in Ontario history. And at 92, he lived longer than any other premier in Ontario history. This is one of those times where I think uh, you, you have to ask the delicate question about this is like when they do a portrait of the queen. <laughs> Bill Davis was in public life so very long. I, I do find myself asking if we're going to do a statue of him, are we going to do a statue of 1970 Bill Davis, 1980 Bill Davis, that's a good question because he got elected in 59 for the first time and he looked, you know, he looked 29 then, but then he was 41 <laughs> when he was premier and of course he was in his mid 50s when he got out of public life and then a lot of people sort of knew him much later in life in his 70s, 80s and even 90s. So good question. I got to get to the bottom of that. I, I know you will. This is a, a task I, I think you will throw yourself into. <laughs> <laughs> With relish. Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Uh, we also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly dash newsletter. Here now, my quote of the week, and you know, it's funny how things change in politics. 
We all well remember a little over four years ago, Doug Ford was getting ready to lose another municipal election for Toronto mayor to John Tory. But then the Ontario PC leadership opened up and Ford ran for that and he won it. And one of his biggest early enemies after he became premier was John Tory because Ford tried to cut Toronto City Council in half and that caused a whole foo Okay, that's the history. Listen now to Premier Ford talking about the mayor of Toronto last week at a provincial government announcement. I want to also thank my good friend, Mayor Tory. You know, Mayor, you, you've been a, a great partner. Uh, you've collaborated and cooperated over a number of uh, years, especially through the pandemic. And for that, I thank you. And also for that, you'll always be my second favorite mayor of Toronto, always. <laughs> so thank you. And that's a compliment, too. That's Doug Ford, whose favorite mayor, I'm guessing, was his brother, Rob. But apparently his old foe, John Tory, is now his friend and number two on the list. Uh, I just have to say, real quality use of the word foo-for-ra. I, was, uh, <laughs> I always enjoy that. I do try. Um, my quote of the week comes from NDP leader Andrew Horvath, who was asked her thoughts shortly after news broke of Christine Elliott's decision not to run again. Uh, Horvath was asked what she thought about the job Elliott did during uh, two of the most difficult years for any health minister in the province's history. Here's what she said. It, you know, there's no doubt it was difficult, but I, I don't agree with a lot of, uh, of the way that um, conservatives have managed our health system and, uh, and don't believe that they've set us up to... Um, you know, to really take care of people's health and well-being. And that was her leadership. So again, yes, it was difficult, but uh, she made choices, as did Doug Ford, that were the wrong choices, that were bad choices. That's NDP leader Andrew Horvath speaking on Friday last week. And that is this edition of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>